Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatrician with expertise in vaccines and infectious disease answers what parents want to know about the COVID-19 vaccine for kids from 5 to 11 years old. The way this vaccine works, especially in kids, that we can finally let those kids unmask and spend time with the grandparents as long as everyone in that group has been uh, fully immunized. And a radiologist talks about medical imaging that's available today and what's coming in the near future. We have a lot of dose reducing techniques now that are built into our machines so that the images are inherently safer than they used to be. All that and a visit from the Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a radiologist explains medical imaging. But first, a pediatrician and scientist provides straight talk about the COVID-19 vaccine for children. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Now that children ages 5 to 11 are eligible for COVID-19 vaccination, I'm talking with a pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Joe Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's also the principal investigator of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine trial underway at Upstate that was one of the first sites in the world to enroll children under 5 years of age. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Domikowski. Thanks, Amber. Thanks very much. Now, parents have a lot of questions, so let's make it clear that we're talking about the vaccine that, that was authorized for use in children 5 to 11. So was the lower age set at 5 just to coincide with the age kids start school, or is there a big difference in the bodies of 3- and 4-year-olds versus 5-year-olds? Well, the emergency use authorization vaccine that was approved is the Pfizer formulation, and the clinical trials have a cutoff, a younger age cutoff of five years. That will change when we start hearing about the data coming from the clinical trials for Moderna, where the young age cutoff was at six. Both trials continue to enroll kids under the age of five and six, but we don't have those data yet for EUA. So it's just being done differently by different vaccine makers. It's a fairly arbitrary cutoff, but it's also based on some prior experience with age groups that do need different dosing regimens when compared to adults. All right, so the one right now, Pfizer, that's available now, is this the same vaccine that adults have already had access to, um, or is there a difference? The vaccine that is emergency use authorized for 5 to 11 is exactly the same as the one that's emergency use authorized for 12 to 16 and approved now, fully approved for use at 16 and over. But the, the subtle difference is the dosing, the amount of antigen or immunizing agent in the vaccine is one third the concentration. So the adult dose is 30 micrograms delivered as a single dose, and then a second dose is given three weeks later. For the 5 to 11-year-olds, the first dose is 10 micrograms, one-third of the adult dose. A second dose of 10 micrograms is then given three weeks later. And it doesn't matter how large or the weight of the child, any, uh, any child from 5 to 11 gets the same 10 micrograms. Is that right? That's exactly right. The way the clinical vaccine trial was developed was the age cutoffs, not by weight. And if we look at other examples for pediatric vaccines, we do similar strategies for vaccines that we use all the time, where we use age uh, cutoff breaks for changing the dosing formulation for other vaccines as well. So it's, it's something that pediatricians are certainly accustomed to. Now, do you expect a Moderna and a Johnson & Johnson vaccine to be authorized for those under age 18 anytime soon? The um, emergency use authorization 
discussion for the Moderna formulation is on um, a temporary hold while more safety information is being collected. That a Moderna strategy clinical trial is just slightly behind the Pfizer formulation. But I do think that ultimately we will have uh, pediatric formulations for both Pfizer and Moderna starting at six months of age. For Johnson & Johnson, they have started some very early phase pediatric trials, but I'm not sure they will continue on. I think they need to see how well the, the market share is and how much uptake there is based on the mRNA vaccines that are uh, several months, if not a year ahead of the efforts at J&J. You use the word safety, and I think that's the main thing for parents. How do we know that these vaccines are safe for our children? Well, we have so far safety data on approximately 4,000 uh, 5 to 11-year-olds that have been immunized in the clinical vaccine trials, and tens of thousands of those individuals are 12 and older who have um, received the adult formulation of the vaccine. And the side effect profile that we're seeing in the 5 to 11-year-olds is very similar to what we see with vaccines that we use every day that we've used for decades in these kids. So some injection site reactions, some low-grade fevers that are self-limiting, they last maybe for a day or two. Uh, most of the people that have gotten the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines as adults have experienced similar side effects. And I can tell you that the rates of those side effects using this lower dose for the 5 to 11-year-olds is a smaller percentage of the total vaccinated. So I think one of the benefits of going to the lower dose for the kids is that we're seeing a much better tolerated uh, reaction profile. And we already know that there's no trade-off in the form of how well we can induce the antibody responses in those kids. So there's no trade-off. The antibody responses are just as good, even though the dose is one-third. You mentioned a lot of the temporary sort of side effects. Are there any serious side effects that were noticed or that parents should be on the lookout for? The only serious side effect that has been noted so far with either of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer formulation or the Moderna formulation, is this very rare side effect of myocarditis within a week or so of receiving usually the second dose. And that was noticed first in young adults, mostly young adult men. The first findings came out of Israel where they launched a vaccine program for 7 million of their population. And that what they were seeing in Israel was an uptick in the reported cases of myocarditis. So this led to some very active surveillance for myocarditis in the adult trial in the United States for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And now, of course, there's much interest in looking to see if this side effect ever occurs in young children. So far from the clinical trials, I can tell you that in the 5 to 11 group, there has not been any cases of myocarditis in the vaccine trials. Of course, we've been only vaccinating starting today uh, in the 5 to 11 group. So we may see some very, very rare reports of myocarditis in that age group going forward. In each case, those um, individuals that develop myocarditis from the vaccine, it's typically a very brief, mild condition. Sometimes hospitalization is necessary for some treatment, but the hospitalizations are also brief and there have been no deaths associated with vaccine-induced myocarditis. But I can tell you that the rates of myocarditis from active COVID infection are at least 10 times the rates that we see from the vaccine and death is a known complication when it occurs from the, the wild-type infection. All right. Well, good to know. I, I want to ask you about the urgency in vaccinating children. Is it true that children are at low risk for getting seriously ill from COVID? As a general population, if we compare the 28 million children that are age 5 to 11 in the United States, as a group, they are at low risk for serious consequences of COVID-19 infection when we compare them to older adults, especially older adults with risk factors that we know. But I can tell you that we've seen dozens of kids hospitalized with COVID, especially the, the young teenagers or adolescents who have underlying risk factors such as asthma or being um, overweight. And while those kids generally do better than the adults do and mortality is low, uh, they end up in the hospital often for a week or longer. There have been about 100 reported cases of COVID deaths in children in the U.S. so far since the pandemic started. And compared to the death numbers in adults, 
that's an impressively no, low number, but a single death in a child is unacceptable, especially when we have a vaccine to prevent this infection. The other issue related to children that doesn't appear to occur in adults is that following COVID infection, even those infections that are very mild or we don't even know about, um, a week or two later, a very small subset of those kids will end up with a post-infectious inflammatory condition that we refer to as MIS-C, or Multisystem Inflammatory Condition of Childhood. This is a life-threatening inflammatory condition. We get those kids in the hospital right away, and we are challenged to quiet down their inflammation. This is a very difficult condition to treat, and I do know of one MIS-C-related death that we had locally. Um, so this this is not something that that should be trivialized. We really need to pay attention that uh, while children are much less likely to suffer the severe consequences of COVID compared with adults, the morbidity and even the mortality is significant enough to warrant widespread vaccination of every single person who's eligible. Well, I've also heard that COVID-19 has become one of the top 10 causes of deaths among children, even though it, it's rare that it's one of the top 10 causes um, among children um, ages 5 to 11. Could widespread vaccination of this population change that? Would it make an impact? Absolutely. We know that prior to use of influenza vaccines, for example, that influenza-related mortality was in the several hundred to five or six hundred range in a particularly bad flu season in children. And now, we, from year to year, if we see more than 80 or 90 deaths in children from influenza, it's an unusually severe year. So already we've identified COVID with these 100 cases as being uh, more likely to cause death than something that we're much more familiar with that thankfully is also vaccine preventable. Now, what do you say to parents who are concerned about how quickly the vaccines seem to have been developed? Um, it didn't seem very quick to me. <laughs> I've been doing the <laughs> clinical trials, but yes, I, I do see their uh, point from the outside looking in. It appears that this got uh, rushed, but remember that the adult trials started about a year before the pediatric trials were even um, designed to allow for early phase one enrollment. So there was substantial am amount of safety data um, in 16 years and older that we relied on as we started immunizing in younger and younger um, populations in the clinical trial efforts. The efforts that we started here for the phase two, three, which are the advanced efficacy type placebo control trials, um, they started in June and it's October. So that seems really fast compared to any other vaccine study that we do. The two differences here are that when a when a new vaccine is being investigated, typically it has to go through the full phase one series of trials, then there's a stop. The FDA looks at the phase one data and then makes a, a, a decision about allowing to go to phase two or to phase two, three. That stop can be a year long and it can really slow the progress down. Uh, the difference here was that phase one, two, and three were all put together as part of the same protocol and very carefully evaluating safety on a day-to-day -day basis as new information came in. And we were prepared to stop enrollment in the trial at a moment's notice if there was a single event that was considered vaccine-associated that was severe, if there was a single death related to the vaccine that was going to shut everything down right away. And then there were softer criteria for the seriousness of the side effects that were being seen. And in fact, as we were dose selecting for each age group in the younger um, ages, we saw a little bit too much fever in the 5 to 11 year olds that got close to the adult dose. So 20 micrograms or even 30 micrograms, they had a little too much side effect reactions. Not that it was severe, but it was so common that we thought it, it doesn't make sense to provide a vaccine for a population uh, like children where we're going to see fever in almost every single one of them. So how can we um, figure out what the dose needed is that can achieve the same result with the same antibody responses and the same efficacy that we already know for adults? And that's how the 10 micrograms was decided. And I can already tell you that the, the dose for the six month up to the five-year-olds is three micrograms. So that's going to be one-tenth of the adult dose. That's how impressive the uh, the profiles are when we look at them one by one. 
much better safety as we get younger and younger with lower and lower doses, but without any um, trade-off as far as the antibodies that are being produced in response to the vaccine. It's good to know Upstate's HealthLink on Air has to take a short break, but we'll be back shortly with more information about the COVID-19 vaccine for kids from pediatric infectious disease specialist, Dr. Joe Domikowski. listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Joseph Domikowski. He's a professor of pediatrics and of microbiology and immunology at Upstate, and he's giving us some straight talk about how the COVID-19 vaccine works for kids ages 5 to 11. Let me ask you about the vaccine trials and whether they revealed any concerns about the vaccine affecting a child's development through puberty or a child's future fertility. Yeah, that's a, a great point because very early on, there were basic research scientists looking at animal models and mm, proteins that are expressed on the surface of placental cells that seemed to very weakly cross-react with the antibodies that we make when we have COVID infection or when we use a COVID vaccine. So there was this basic science hypothesis that we could interfere with placental development if we have antibodies that are directed against those placental proteins. Well, it turns out that um, in, in it was important to study it, but it turns out that those antibodies are so weakly attracted to those particular cross-reacting proteins in the placenta that they don't really bind much at all. So it ends up being a non-concern. Unfortunately, it got translated in, in some of the late um, literature and some of the, the social media as, uh, indicative that we may have some problems with puberty or fertility and those types of things. Uh, if you go back to the source where the idea came from, it's easy to prove that wrong already. Okay. Now, are the vaccines appropriate for children with compromised immune systems or children that have chronic health conditions? Yes. So, of course, we want to um, protect those who are most at risk uh, most carefully. So are the vaccines that we have or the one for the um, Pfizer formulation for the five to 11 year olds that now has authorization for use, is it appropriate for those immune compromised patients or medically complex patients? Well, in the clinical trials, those particular groups of children were excluded, particularly because we know that in general, they respond less well to all vaccines. And we wanted a real world look at how well these vaccines did at producing antibodies in the general population. So the, the corollary is that we expect these vaccines to work reasonably well in those medically complex patients, but they may not do what we expect them to do in otherwise healthy kids. And that is a trade-off that we always take in children and in adults. And it's one of the reasons why now, um, if, if you're following the, the recommendations for boosters, that booster vaccines for adults that are transplant recipients, talk about immune compromise, right? That population um, really has a very compromised ability to respond to things that are trying to come and infect them or to vaccines. And in that situation, it's clear that for adults with you know, transplants, we need to revaccinate them mul with multiple boosters. Uh, currently, the, the total regimen is four doses, but it won't surprise me if that goes up. So when we talk about children who are compromised as far as their immune system goes, or they're medically complex, maybe they have a trach or they need a, a ventilator at night in order to, um, to maintain their breathing, those are among the highest risk for morbidity or death from COVID infection. So they should be first in line for vaccination. We should be doing everything that we can to protect them, social distancing, masking, making sure the people around them are vaccinated, especially if they have healthier immune systems. We don't wanna bring the virus to those kids. And of course, vaccinating the kids in the hope that their immune systems are healthy enough to at least give them some level of protection. So what you just said pretty much applies to adults too that have health conditions that they still have to take care, whether they're vaccinated or not. They still have to use common sense and the, the social distancing and the masking just to protect themselves still. 
Absolutely. Now, there, there are a subset of vaccines that we call live vaccines. Most of them are live viral vaccines, meaning they're weakened viruses that are very similar to the virus that causes the infection, like measles is a good example. Chickenpox is another good example. Those vaccines, even though they're weakened vaccines, because they're still live, they are not appropriate to give to our very immune compromised patients because they may not even be able to fight off that very weakened vaccine strain. But for the COVID vaccines, none of them have been developed as live vaccines. So we don't have to consider the live vaccine issue as far as a contraindication to receiving vaccines for those who have immune compromised conditions. In fact, those are the patients that should be at the top of the list and prioritized to get the vaccines themselves. Are there any children who should not get the vaccine? The only absolute contraindication to receiving the EUA uh, vaccine, the Pfizer formulation, 10 micrograms, is a known allergy to a vaccine component. And thankfully, these vac mRNA vaccines are the simplest biochemically, the simplest vaccines that we use across the board. They have RNA in them and they have some cholesterol-like uh, fatty lipid particles to protect the mRNA from being degraded before we inject it as a vaccine into an individual. That's it. The rest is just some salts and buffers that all of us are exposed to every day when we have a Gatorade or drink, drink drinking water. So they're very unlikely for individuals to be allergic to one of those lipid components. Um, but there are a, a very, very small number of individuals who have received those types of lipids in another medication, or even who receive a single dose, who have a, an acute severe allergic reaction to it, who should never receive another dose of that particular form formulation. Since the um, formulation of the J&J &J vaccine is quite different, it is often an alternative if we do have someone who can't receive one of the RNA vaccines. For now, that's limited to adults, but hopefully at one day, it'll be extended to children as well. Now, what about a child who was sick with COVID or who tested positive before? Do they still need to be vaccinated? Absolutely, yes. And the data for this are becoming more and more clear that immunity from natural infection is nowhere as good as the immunity that's achieved following two doses of mRNA vaccines for children or for adults. And ironically, the people that are best protected who are immunized are those who were infected with COVID before they started their vaccine series. So that's an even added incentive in my mind to say, wow, you can really be even better protected for a longer period of time if you already had COVID and now you're gonna get your two dose mRNA vaccine series, Pfizer or uh, Moderna. Um, those individuals now clearly show that their longevity or their durability of protection is going to be for many months longer than those of us who weren't infected before we started the vaccine series. It's great information. It's really carefully described. So how soon after a child is vaccinated are they protected? And they need the two-dose series, so that's they're three weeks apart, right? Correct. So if they get their first dose today, they would get their uh, second dose right before Thanksgiving, um, three weeks from now. And then two weeks after that two-dose series, they're considered protected. They're considered fully vaccinated. Whether or not boosters will be recommended based on the clinical trial data that we're continuing to, to gather uh, is still an unanswered question. But we will have an answer for the community once we get to that point because the clinical vaccine trials are several months ahead of the emergency use authorization community availability for the 5 to 11 year olds. Can children get the COVID-19 vaccine at the same time they get other childhood vaccines? Yeah, so the advisory committee on immunization practices, this is the advisory committee to the Centers for Disease Control. Um, this is the group that met on November 2nd of, of this year to basically recommend that COVID vaccine be used in children 5 to 11 now that it was emergency use authorized by the FDA. So the ACIP has stated that other recommended vaccines can be given, can be given uh, safely at the same time the COVID vaccine is administered. This is based on limited amount of data because we didn't do that during the clinical vaccine trials. 
uh, intentionally, but some of those kids did get vaccines mm, sort of on the side, even though they weren't supposed to in the vaccine trial. Uh, so based on what we know about vaccinology in general, there's very few instances where all of the vaccines that an individual is due for cannot be given at that same visit. So the ACIP is using that historical information to provide this guidance, completely understanding that doing so offers a level of um, logistical convenience and also will improve both our immunizations uh, rates for COVID and for influenza. Because spacing them out or doing them at different times means that we start losing some of those kids to having one or the other full series of vaccination. So the current recommendation is yes, COVID vaccine can be given along with influenza vaccine at the same time in a different injection spot and other vaccines that are also necessary could also be considered at the same time. The downside of doing so is that if there are moderate or severe side effects, it's unclear which of the vaccines that were given has caused the side effect. So in children who have a history of maybe having excessive swelling or injection site reactions in response to other vaccines, it might be better to space these out and give the COVID vaccine separately and independently so that uh, vaccine specific side effects can be determined for the future. Now, I know we talked about the dosage of the vaccine being about a third or 10 micrograms for kids from age five to 11 compared with the adults that get the 30. And we talked about size, but let me ask you this. If a person has a large 11 year old who's turning 12 next month, should they just wait a month to get the full dose or should they vaccinate now? My recommendation in that situation is to go forward with the 10 microgram dose times two, three weeks apart. And the reason I say that is that we know the side effect profile in the 12 to 16 year olds from the adult dose, the 30 microgram dose that's emergency use authorized for 12 to 16 is more reactogenic than the 10 microgram dose is for the five to 11 year olds, meaning it causes more side effects, injection site reactions, more fever, a higher percentage of those kids will, will end up with those things. The FDA asks both Pfizer and Moderna to do an extension of the safety study for the clinical trials that we're involved with now, looking specifically at a lower dose for 12 to 30 years old. So we're not just stopping in the teenage age group. Um, these clinical trials are going from 12 up to 30, where a 10 microgram dose is now being evaluated for exactly the same reason. Can we bring that dose down to 10 micrograms without trading off how well it works and thereby reduce the, the tolerability profile, reduce the percentage of those individuals having moderate side effects. And I'm going to predict that we start soon using a 10 microgram dose as a two dose series for many individuals, at least through the teenage years. We have to wait for the formal clinical trial results, but it won't surprise me at all. And that's why I would recommend that um, an 11 year old soon turning 12, even if they're not a large 11 year old, uh, go ahead and get vaccinated under the current EUA 10 microgram dose regimen. All right, well, let's talk a little bit more about what the vaccine provides to children. If a child is vaccinated, can they still be infected with COVID-19? Yes, there, there's no doubt that none of the vaccines that we use for anything are 100% effective. There's differences in immune responses for many, many different reasons but there's always going to be a small percentage of individuals that just aren't fully protected. Now, the vaccinology tells us, the science tells us, and experience tells us that those who are vaccinated, if they do get a breakthrough infection, will have a much milder course and be less likely to be hospitalized, for example, or have a severe complication from the infection. Well, for children who get vaccinated, for most children who get vaccinated, if they are exposed to COVID-19, does the fact that they're vaccinated, is that gonna prevent them from spreading the virus to other people? Well, the, the clinical trial data that we have so far, so the purest data um, for the clinical trial participants, uh, one third of them got placebo, meaning they didn't get active vaccine at all. Two thirds of them got vaccine. At three months, after their second dose in the clinical trial, there were 16 total cases 
of COVID infection documented in the placebo group, which is again, one third of the total enrolled. And in the vaccinated group, there are only three. So 91%, almost 91% efficacy at preventing infection altogether. And if you don't get infected, you're not gonna spread it to someone else. Will those few that do have breakthrough infections um, have enough virus replication and have sort of respiratory hygiene that's uh, sloppy enough, if you will, uh, that they can be transmitting that infection? Sure, but it's much less likely than a child who's never been vaccinated, who's replicating very, very high amounts of virus and you know, coughing or sneezing, and those individuals are going to easily transmit, especially the Delta variant. Do we know how well this vaccine is going to protect against future variants? We don't, because we don't know what variants are going to emerge. Um, this virus is um, you know, kind of tricky. We have to try to keep up with it and watch it very carefully. The, the virologic testing that's being done is molecular and it's being followed and tracked to try to predict what variants might emerge, especially variants that could evade the protection provided by the current vaccine strategies. Luckily, uh, the mRNA vaccine uh, production process is simple enough compared to every other vaccine that's being made for other reasons that changing the mRNA in that vaccine is fairly straightforward and simple so that we can use a change or a mutation in our vaccine to change the way our antibodies are made so that it's directed specifically against a mutant that we can't currently provide protection for. So it, it won't be done over the course of two or three years like we would expect for a different type of vaccine strategy, but we're talking about within a couple of months, we could have a, a new formulation or an added mRNA subgroup of subspecies in the vaccine to provide that extra protection on top of the current antibodies that we're already making from the widespread Delta variant. That's good to know. Now, kids who get vaccinated, once um, they're fully vaccinated, can they safely interact with grandparents? Can they go out and sort of start living life again? Now, we have to look at both sides. So we need to make sure that those grandparents are also vaccinated. And if those family members are now vaccinated, I say, let those families come together as long as nobody is feeling ill. You know, if anybody's feeling sick, it's not a good idea to be hanging around with uh, folks who are older, especially the more frail el elderly who have um, comorbidities, other medical conditions underlying. And that's just good common sense even before the pandemic, right? So. I would say that the, the way this vaccine works, especially in kids, that we can finally let those kids unmask and spend time with the grandparents as long as everyone in that group has been uh, fully immunized. Well, before we wrap up, can you tell us where things stand with a vaccine for children under the age of five? I know you're involved in trials for that, but can you predict how soon things might wrap up? Sure, yes, it's um, very exciting. So we have been involved in recruiting and enrolling children in the clinical vaccine trial down to age six months. The total trial enrollment has been completed, uh, but we're now waiting for the rest of the antibody response data from the blood testing that's done in those immunized to be finished and analyzed. And once that's done, um, Pfizer will certainly be pulling together an emergency use authorization packet for submission to the FDA. It's likely that will first happen for the two to five-year-old group, just because that group is really good four to six weeks ahead of the six-month to two-year-old group in the clinical trials. Um, and then to follow in a wave sort of is the, the data for the younger kids. And as we, um, as we gain more information about the safety profile and the immunogenicity profile of that three microgram dose, right? This is one-tenth of the adult dose we're studying in the under five-year-olds then I think that the FDA will be eager to evaluate its safety profile and how well it's working. Thank you for taking time to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Joe Domikowski, a professor of pediatrics and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. A look at different types of medical imaging techniques next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lots of times because of illness or injury, doctors need to have a look inside our bodies, and often they can accomplish that through one or more medical imaging techniques. To help us understand what's available in medical imaging today and in the future is Dr. Michelle Lisi. She's an Associate Professor of Radiology and Interim Chair of Radiology at Upstate. I appreciate you taking time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Lisi. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I think listeners have probably heard of x-rays, ultrasound, CAT scans, MRIs, but I'm not sure we really understand which is used for what. So I'd like to have you explain the differences. Can we start with x-rays, which I believe have probably been around the longest. Is that right? That is correct. X-rays have been around for quite a while, since the 1800s, actually. Plain x-rays are a two-dimensional picture of our body. So we look at, for example, a chest x-ray, and that's giving us a two-dimensional picture of what's inside our lungs and allows us to look at the bones. Does an x-ray let you see tissue and organs? We can see tissue and organs with x-ray, but the main reason for x-ray is looking at bones. And we do that for fractures, dislocations when a joint becomes separated. Very common in the emergency department. Also good in terms of the chest for looking for pneumonia. So there are some soft tissue applications for plain x-rays, but the applications are much fewer than with other modalities. Now, what about ultrasounds? We've heard about ultrasounds being used during pregnancy, but there's other things they're used for as well, right? Definitely. Ultrasound is a great tool, mainly because it doesn't give the patient any radiation. So it's based on sound waves. And yes, it is very common to be used in pregnancy for looking at the anatomy of the baby. But we also use it for the gallbladder. That's a very common reason to use it in the emergency department. If somebody's having pain, you can find gallstones or infection in the gallbladder. It's a very good screening tool to look at the liver, for example, or the kidneys for certain types of ailments, kidney stones. So yeah, there are many reasons that we would use ultrasound other than just pregnancy. Is mammogram the same type of thing? Is that an ultrasound or is that something else? No, mammography is another form of x-ray, kind of like the plain x-ray that we talked about in the beginning. Mammogram does use radiation, but it's a different type of radiation than what we use for the x-ray. So it does allow us to see tissue better. So it's very good for looking at the breast tissue and looking for cancers. We've probably heard of CAT scans. Now, am I correct that that is computerized tomography? Correct. What is that used for? And is it the same thing as a PET scan? So no, PET scans and CT scans are different. So a CT scan is a way that we can look at cross sections of the body. So as I mentioned with plain x-rays, you're looking at a two-dimensional picture of a three-dimensional structure like our body. The CAT scan actually allows us to look at things in a three-dimensional way. So it does use radiation, x-ray radiation, just like the plain x-rays do, but it takes them in such a way that we can see the body as if we sliced it. And so you get much more anatomy in a CAT scan. It's more sensitive for certain things, and it's used for the entire body from the head all the way down um, through the legs. Uh, We have various applications for that. So I like how you described it's like a 3D x-ray. Yeah, we take the pictures and then with the computer, we can reconstruct them or form them into three-dimensional images. Now, a PET scan is entirely something different? A PET scan is entirely different. That is something where we are actually injecting a form of radiation into the patient, and we are looking at where it comes from within the body. That's very common for cancer imaging. The radioactive tracer that we call it that you inject into the patient is a sugar it's a type of sugar that cancer cells or cells that are active in the body actually want to eat the sugar and so that tracer will go to those types of cells and then we can generate an image based on where those sugar molecules go in the body so totally different but yet the same in a way now when are mris used and that's magnetic resonance imaging That is, yes, magnetic resonance imaging. That's used in many different applications as well. Probably, I would say the most common indications are for the brain. You get very nice pictures of the brain with MRI. 
and for joints. People that have joint injuries or ligaments, when they tear the ligaments or the tendons and muscles, MRI is very good at looking at those tissues. So whereas with the x-ray, we see bone very well, MRI kind of gives us a little bit better depiction of the soft tissues. And also I will point out with MRI that we do not use radiation. It's a magnetic field. So there's no radiation to the patient with MRI. Let me ask you, as a radiologist, do you have physicians coming to you and saying, here's the situation, which imaging is the best thing for what I need? Definitely. There are so many things now that we're able to do with imaging. I mean, there's always new technology. So very often there'll be a conundrum that a, a physician may have and need our opinion on what to do next. Well, what have I left out? Does nuclear imaging fit in anywhere? It does, yes. Yeah. So nuclear imaging sort of goes back to the PET scan. That's uh, a form of nuclear imaging, or as we now call it, molecular imaging. And we do quite a bit of that as well. We have various tracers, as I mentioned, that can be injected into patients and will go to places in the body of various pathological conditions. For example, we do something called bone scanning, where we inject a tracer and the tracer will go to areas in the bone that may be fractured, that may have cancer. And we can take pictures of that and see where that goes and detect where those abnormalities are. And molecular imaging is a very interesting upcoming technique for looking at various types of pathology. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Michelle Lisi. She's an associate professor of radiology and the interim chair of radiology at Upstate. And we've been talking about medical imaging. We've talked about x-rays and CT scans and MRIs and sonograms, a variety of things. I wanted to know, are these modalities that we've talked about, are they widely available even in small hospitals or medical centers, or do you have to go to a specialized center? For the most part, they are. Most places nowadays will have all modalities available. Some of the higher-end imaging PET scans, for example, may not be available in all hospitals or in all medical systems, but definitely more widely available than they were in the past. Are there risks that patients should be aware of? I know the different modalities, some of them have radiation, some of them don't, but in general, what do patients need to be aware of before they have medical images? I think just the fact that there is a dose of radiation that the patients will receive with x-ray or CAT scan or some of the molecular imaging or PET scan studies. But the dose is minimal. We have a lot of dose reducing techniques now that are built into our machines so that the images are inherently safer than they used to be in terms of the radiation dose. Sonography or ultrasound really doesn't have a risk associated with it since that's all based on sound waves and not radiation. And magnetic resonance or MRI, when we screen patients for those examinations, we just want to make sure that they don't have any metallic implants, or if they do, there are many of the metallic implants that are very safe, actually, and most of them nowadays are safe for going into the magnet, but we do screen the patients and ask if they've ever had any implants or if they have any metal that we need to be aware of just in case there may be a problem. But for the most part, the medical implants are safe for the magnet. Now, the medical imaging we've talked about, are they all static images or are there modalities that allow for live video of a medical image? So with x-ray, there's something called fluoroscopy that we can look at live images. For example, patients that are having difficulty swallowing and they're concerned that they're aspirating or getting pneumonia because contents are going into their lungs, we can do studies where we actually watch them swallow. We give them food that's labeled with something we can see on the x-ray and have them eat in front of us and we can watch them swallowing mechanism. And then ultrasound as well. We do take static pictures with ultrasound, but when you are in the room scanning the patient, that is basically like a live video image. Now, do radiologists learn all of these medical imaging modalities, and then do they specialize in one or two, or are they expected to be able to do all of them? That depends. Definitely during the residency, we learn all about all of the modalities and pretty much everything there is in radiology as a general 
knowledge base, but then people typically do subspecialize after the residency. And it's not necessarily modality specialized, it's more of, um, how shall I say, body part specialized. So for example, you have people that specialize in abdominal imaging or people that specialize in neuro, the brain, the spine, or the chest, for example. When those require different training, you have people that specialize in nuclear medicine, mammography. So there are definitely subspecialties within our scope, but again, it's more body part based than modality based. I want to ask you about types of imaging that are in development. Now you mentioned molecular imaging, so that's already in use, but it it sounds like it's pretty new, right? Well, it's not new. Actually, molecular imaging used to be referred to as nuclear medicine. It has been around for quite a while. As a matter of fact, a lot of the pioneering in nuclear medicine took place here at Upstate back in the 70s. One of the agents that's most commonly used for bone scanning was developed here at Upstate. Just a little piece of history, which is great. I had no idea. What is the element called? It's called MDP. And it was developed here in our lab downstairs in the basement back in, I believe, the early 70s. We had quite an extensive department here at one time. So it has been around for quite a while, but so many new tracers are being developed. And many of these tracers now, not only are we able to use them to image patients, but we're using them to treat patients as well by labeling them with, say, different molecules that are capable of treatment of cancer specifically. And that's something that's just rapidly developing which is very exciting. What would doctors like to be able to do with imaging that they aren't able to do right now? A lot of times we do get asked to make a definitive decision about something. We see a lesion or something in the body and they say, well, what is it? We need to know what it is. And sometimes we can't tell them. (laughs) We wish we could, but sometimes you actually need to look at the cells. We're not the pathologist, we're the radiologist. I, I wish we could sometimes be a little more definitive, but I think that's probably what physicians would want the most from us, but we can't always tell exactly what something is. Just give our best guess a lot of times. The images today, are you looking at a computer screen or do they get printed out still on paper of some sort? No, that went away. Here at Upstate, we started using what we call a PAC system, which is what gives us the images on computer back in 2004 is when we started doing that. So I think most places now are obviously in the computer screen mode. Are computers or artificial intelligence being used to help read and interpret images, or do you think it will be in the future? I do. That's something that's really been talked about quite a bit in radiology, not only for diagnosis, but also using artificial intelligence for making images look better while using less radiation to make the images. That's something that's being studied quite extensively. And we've been using artificial intelligence for mammography for quite a while to help define or to recognize lesions on mammography. And there are other applications that are coming along as well with chest imaging, abdominal imaging. We're not using it yet, but I think it's on the horizon. I really appreciate you making time to give us this overview. My guest has been Associate Professor of Radiology, Dr. Michelle Lisi, who is Interim Chair of the Radiology Department at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Marilyn McVickers has published several books of poetry and nonfiction. The poem she sent us deftly separates good doctors from poor doctors. She reminds patients to speak up and not settle for less than a caring professional. Here is Doctors. I breathe, review my notes, while the clock ticks the minutes, weeks, years of illness decanted into a 20-minute appointment. I have driven so many miles. Will she listen? Will she walk in with a smile? I have had so many doctors wear their impertinence like stethoscopes. Well, you certainly don't look sick. 
Your diagnosis is too complicated. There's nothing I can do to help you. This poem is not for all those smirking, frenzied physicians who push judgment and peddle fear. This poem is for the doctor who pulled up a chair, made eye contact, listened. This poem is for the doctor who ventured from behind the computer, listened, asked intelligent questions. This poem is for the doctor who did not reflexively grab the prescription pad, realized I needed medical care, admitted he couldn't help, found someone who could. This poem is for the doctor who worked to find the right diagnosis, taught me to give my own injections, started home infusions, called each week to check in. This poem is for the doctor who understood his partnership was more important than healing that would never come. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, fall prevention for seniors. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, Thanking you for listening.